Hello and welcome to another episode of Not D&D, which is brought to you by EN Live, part of EN World, the leading tabletop news and review site. I'm Jessica, your host, and furthering my redhead agenda, I have an excellent guest with me this week, of Stephen Dewey. Stephen, thanks Hello. so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so I, I had to put the redhead agenda on there because on Twitter yes. you are the shifty ginger, uh, which Indeed. I thought was fantastic. So I thought <laughs> having the two of us here, we're like furthering some evil agenda we clearly all have. It's too powerful. It's too much power in one place. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But also, uh, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, So for people that aren't familiar with with you and what you do, could you give us a little introduction uh, about yourself and what you do at Cavalry Games? Sure. So uh, Cavalry Games is my self-publishing RPG imprint, RPG and potentially someday other games. Um, Mm -hmm. That is the company that I... uh, sort of built back in 2015 to support the release of my flagship tabletop RPG, 10 Candles. Uh, It hasn't grown too, too much beyond that in the several years since. I'm working on other stuff in the background, but um, Uh it was really created as a publishing imprint for 10 Candles because I decided at the time I really wanted to uh, not only do the designing aspects of game, but also the publishing aspects. So that's mm-hmm. been where I've been basing all my designs out of for the past seven years or so. Fantastic. And Ten Candles is the game we're here to talk about uh, this episode. Mm-hmm. So we will be getting into that to talk about it later. But before we get into that, with every guest, I always talk about your background and history with games and, and how you got to the place you are now. Um, so my first question is, what was the first tabletop RPG you remember playing? The first tabletop RPG I ever played was something that, wasn't really anything published. Uh, It was my brother, my older brother at the time when I was much, much younger, like single digits, had had exposure to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, At the time, it was like third edition, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he decided to cobble some things together and run sort of a little mini game for me because I was very interested in it at the time. Nice. Um, So that was my first ever experience. It was random and chaotic and didn't last more than a couple sessions, but that was enough for me to get hooked. Uh, And then eventually that led to my first sort of published RPG experience, which was at the time Dungeons and Dragons. Amazing. So what, how did you, how did you go from somebody that just plays and enjoys games to somebody that, that makes them? What was that? What was that path like for you? Cause I know a lot of people that watch this are, are interested in doing that themselves. Well, it kind of came from two different avenues, one of which was that I quickly became someone who was much more interested in running games and telling stories than playing them. So I uh, really committed very quickly to being the permanent dungeon master or game master in in any Mm -hmm. group that I was playing. And I was really interested in those stories and in telling those stories, uh, in facilitating them. So I began to get very intimately familiar with rule systems. And at the time, I only knew about D&D. But when eventually I sort of broke past that barrier and saw the wealth of indie games and story games that were out there, I began to become obsessed with those rule systems as well. And how so much could be done with so little. Uh, And that kind of catapulted me forward to wanting 
to see what other kinds of stories you could tell that yeah. weren't necessarily within the traditional framework. Amazing. You sound like the opposite of me because I am, you know how you get forever GMs? <laughs> I am the yes. forever player. Um, but interestingly enough, I was so excited to have you on to talk about 10 Candles because this is the game actually I want to run this game. And I am like a forever player. I've been playing for like yeah. a decade. I don't run games, but this one I was like, I could run this. Uh, so we're going to get can. into it and talk about it. I, I, um, I, do you know what? I think I will. Um, and we're going to talk about it now. So this game has had loads of accolades uh, and awards. So you start off with Kickstarter back in like 2014, was it? Yeah. So a wee while ago. Uh, then since then, you've had an Indie Groundbreaker Award, Indie RPG runner-up for the most innovative game, Golden Geek Award nominations, nominations that any is for Product of the Year, Best Rules, Best Electronic Book. So people quite like this game. So that must be pretty nice. Like, how did that feel doing the Kickstarter and then having people receive the game so well afterwards? It. It was incredible because I'd never made an RPG before. I tried, obviously, to make one that I thought would be good and that people yeah. would enjoy. But the initial Kickstarter, while being, for me, wildly successful, mm -hmm. was nowhere near what I think people would traditionally consider to be a successful crowdfunding campaign. It was sure. largely, you know, uh, a huge percentage of that were friends and family and people who knew me and it started to get yeah. out there somewhere and, and I'm horrible at like I'm not a marketer I'm horrible mm -hmm. at getting the word out there so really 10 candles needed to survive through word of mouth it was the mm -hmm. only way that game would spread and yeah. it did in a way that I was never expecting it to Amazing. Uh, it really hit a nerve where I, I tended to find that you know, a lot of the time, if you would sit down and play in a session of 10 Candles, for so many people, it was such a surprising experience and such mm -hmm. an evocative experience yeah. that at least one person around that table is going to think, maybe I should run this and get their own copy of it. Um, and that yeah. that's sort of how it spread. People wanted to mm -hmm. share that experience with other people uh, in a way that kind of, I guess, makes sense to me in retrospect, but at the time was very surprising. So, you know, I, I actively was submitting it in that early year as best as I could to as many mm -hmm. awards and things like that that I could just to try to get it out there. The response mm -hmm. was incredible. It, it I don't yeah. think it ever actually took home a, an award, but it was, uh, it got a lot of nominations. It like got a lot of runner up sort of honorable yeah. mentions. Uh, and for my first game, I can't complain. It was incredible. Yeah, I mean, well, what you say about word of mouth is 100% how I heard about it as well. Because um, as I mentioned to you before, so many people that came on this show, I ask at the end if you have people have any recommendations for other indie games. And I had so many people recommend this game to me. So I was like, I have to check this out. Um, but so speaking about this game, if people watching aren't familiar with it, how would you describe this game to somebody? What's the elevator pitch for the game? Sure. So in 10 Candles, uh, it is a tragic horror storytelling game. You play mm -hmm. a group of survivors that are trying to make the best of some ap apocalyptic scenario. Uh, mm -hmm. It has a lot of default scenarios about the world <clears throat> going dark, the sun being gone, there's monsters yeah. in the darkness in the book, but it really shines as a toolbox for any kind of horror game that you want to tell. Mm -hmm. um, significant things about this game is that it is actually played by the light of 10 tea light candles, as is as in the title of the game. 
Yeah. Uh, and those candles function for a few in a few different ways. They function as a countdown timer for the game, where every time that a roll of the dice is failed, one of those candles will go out, and the story will step one step closer to its conclusion. Uh, they also help to ramp up the tension of the game, because every candle that goes out, the scenes get a little bit harder, a little bit shorter. It's more complicated for the players to succeed, uh, and it's much more likely that dangerous or terrifying things will happen with them. Um, mm -hmm. They're also used very practically, obviously exercise caution whenever around open flames, but in an <laughs> ideal in an ideal play session, you're also using them to literally burn away your character as you play, where parts mm -hmm. of your character sheet, the index cards that you've built them on are going to literally go up in flames as your characters use up their resources and use up their second chances. Uh, but the most important part of those candles is that eventually they're going to burn out. And when only one candle is left, you enter the final scene of the game in which the tragic horror aspect of the game comes to fruition. Because this is not a survival horror game where your players, where your characters might survive or might die. They are all going to die in that final scene of play. And everyone knows that going in. So there's, yeah. it's not a surprise. It's a pre-negotiated story about these characters in the final hours that they are alive. And it facilitates your ability to tell much more intense stories because you know how it's going to end. It's yeah. a much more collaborative storytelling effort between the, mm -hmm. uh, the game master and the players because it's not kind of competitive where the players are trying to have their characters survive and trying to beat the GM or outsmart them. Instead, sure. you're all kind of working together because the only way you win is by just mm -hmm. telling a really cool story together about these people. We want to build them up so that we can yeah. break them down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this game sounds so great because I think what you were telling, we're going to get into more detail about it, but the way you describe it's collaborative storytelling, I think for any GM or player, playing this game will help you in other games that you play because I think it's going to mm -hmm. make you think about role playing in a slightly different way and be like, oh yeah, I hadn't considered that or things like that. Um, so I think this is a great game to play. Um, and this is designed to be a one shot. So it's just played mm -hmm. over two to four hours. And as you say, hugely replayable, though, because you could do so many different scenarios. And because it's a collaborative with the players there, if you get a different group of people, I imagine you have such a different game. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So diving into to, into the game, into the detail a bit more. Um, so I love the way character creation is done in this game. Could you just talk us through how uh, people make their characters? Yeah, so you build your characters on a stack of the aforementioned index cards. You've got these index mm -hmm. cards. They contain everything there is to know about your character, which isn't a lot. We don't need to know a ton about them. We don't need to have a really incredibly detailed backstory for these characters. Sure. As you said, we're going to be playing with them for a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. um, but in that, there are different stages of creating these characters and different aspects to them. So first off, you have their traits, you have their virtue and their vice. So a virtue is the positive trait, the vice is the negative trait. Uh, this is some you know one or two word aspect about their personality. Virtues, that's something about them or something that they have or something that they know that's going to help 
solve problems, whereas the vice might create problems. It's some sure. negative attribute, something they're ashamed of, something they're addicted to. You've got both of these things will help you in the same mechanical way, but mm -hmm. by utilizing both of them, we're gonna sort of see the positive and negative of this character. You also have your moment. Uh, your moment is an event. It's you're sort of pre-writing a scene or mm -hmm. uh, an event that will happen over the course of the game during which your character may have the possibility of finding hope in the darkness. So your moment mm -hmm. might read something like, I will find hope when I find my sister, or I will mm -hmm. find hope when I kill one of the monsters, whatever it might be. And it's yeah. an opportunity that we put on the table. Um, moments are really cool because it's one of the things in the rules that allows for 10 candles to be a zero prep game. It's really designed yeah. so that players, uh, GMs don't design or don't have to work to design a big module ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Moments are sort of your keystone moments over the course of that two to four hour gameplay time. They're already mapped out. Those, those you know, heartfelt or really intense character moments, the players are already writing them down uh, mm -hmm. and they'll have the opportunity to sort of try and roll some dice when that moment comes up uh, and potentially be rewarded or punished depending on how that role goes. Uh, and then the final piece is what's called the brink. Uh, the brink is sort of a secret trait and it's not really who your character is. It's more what your character is capable of when pushed to the brink. So a brink is something sort of darker. Uh, it shows a, uh, the darker, more stressed out or panicked or last resort side of your character um, and what they might be capable of. And when that's mm -hmm. used, it can come again with a really big mechanical benefit or a really big mechanical downfall, uh, depending on how it's engaged with by your character. Um, one of the okay. things about character creation that's really fun is that your traits are not actually written by you for yourself. Your mm -hmm. traits are written by the people sitting next to you. And whoever writes your vice for you is also going to be the person who writes your brink for you. And it is that their character actually knows that your character is capable of that they know some secret that you are holding back about who you really are or what you can really become. And when players are all writing the brinks for each other, one of the players will also write the brink for the monsters. They'll write the GM's brink. They know what the monsters are capable of and they're the only one who knows that. And the GM will write a brink for the player mm -hmm. sitting to their left. The monsters know what this, cap this player is capable of but yeah. none of the other characters around the table do. So it, it bakes in some secrets right from the get-go. It bakes in some nice. relationships between these characters as you generate who they are and what they're going to be doing over the course of the game. That's amazing. How long did it take to kind of that to come out in kind of playtesting? Was that an idea you had from the beginning or did it evolve through playtesting, creating characters that way? What was that process like? It very much did evolve. Um, mm -hmm. Character creation was one of those things that started way more complicated than it is now. Mm -hmm. I think if I'm thinking back, I believe the earliest iteration 
of uh, character creation was actually that everyone would write a couple of traits and put them in mm -hmm. a big pile. And then the GM would actually auction the traits off and people <laughs> could bid a number of like matches they had to okay. buy the traits for their character. It's a really fun idea. I will yeah. undoubtedly reuse it eventually, but this yeah. just wasn't the game for that. It didn't really sure. make sense with the theme of the game. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I eventually just made it a lot more easy, a lot more streamlined. Um, sure. There were a lot of ideas like that that eventually just didn't fit with the theme and got tossed mm -hmm. uh, to make it as streamlined as, as it is right now. Really, that's what playtesting did for me. It cut out a lot of mm -hmm. unnecessary parts of the game. Yes. So it could just really focus on what was important for the theme and for yeah. making the rules work. You had to kill your darlings. That was the, yes. that was the thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think the way it's the simplicity of this game is what people talk about. They use the word elegant a lot. So I think cutting out things is, is definitely the way to go. And I think for a lot of other people designing, definitely something to look at because I think the temptation is to do loads of fun stuff and put in loads of fun ideas but sometimes just just pairing it back and keeping it small and elegant can make something really fantastic um yeah, one of one of the uh one of the um award nominations that I that 10 candles received that I'm most proud of uh was for the Ennies the year I I published it for best rules. And I was I was so happy because that was what the, the component of the game mm -hmm. that I was most proud of was making these rules that were tied in intricately with the theme. So there was this harmony between how the mm -hmm. rules worked and what the themes were um, while also keeping them light and simple enough that they did do work. It, it, I, it's not really what I would call a super, super rules-like system. There are rules there, and some of them can be kind of complicated, but once you've got it on lock, they just disappear. They go, they do what they need to do, and then they get out of the way immediately. Yeah, I think that definitely works. And like you say, the best best rules, I think, as a game designer is... Yeah, that, that's the award you want, isn't it? Because that's what yeah. you're doing with it. Um, so we've, we've touched on character creation uh, there, and I'm going to come back to when we talk about mechanically how we burn burn those cards in the game, because that's very fun. Um, but could we talk about this kind of structure of the game? Because you mentioned the 10 candles uh, kind of structure the pace of the game and kind of the, the scenes. Uh, so if we could talk about like how, how scene works and, and how you structure the game. Yeah, so the basic mechanics that the game revolves around is a communal pool of dice that is shared by the players. So at the start of the game, the players have a big pool of 10 dice, 10 candles, 10 mm -hmm. dice. Uh, they're all six-sided dice. And whenever the players need to make a conflict roll, they will take all of those dice and roll them. Mm -hmm. And that can be for if the, the action that they're trying to undertake requires skill or luck, or just has an unknown outcome. And that okay. unknown outcome is intended to be fairly broad. Again, this is a zero prep game. So if mm -hmm. the GM doesn't already have an idea for what's in the safe or what's going to happen when the players knock on the door to this mysterious house, they don't need to know. They can just roll a, have the players roll a conflict roll, even though the, oh. it, it isn't challenging to knock on the door to a house, but it has an unknown outcome. Sure. So the players will take up their dice and they'll roll them. As long as they get at least one six, they're successful. Okay. And if they get more sixes than the GM, 
they will also get to narrate exactly what happens as a result of the conflict. Okay. So at the beginning of the game, the GM has no dice. The players have this big pool of 10 dice. So okay. they're going to be succeeding and they're going to be narrating most of the time. Okay. If they roll any ones, those ones are removed from the die pool. They're set aside and they'll stay set aside for the rest of the scene. So this mm -hmm. communal die pool will begin to shrink until eventually someone fails a roll. At that point, the, uh, the roll has failed. The GM will narrate some grisly or horrible thing that happens as a result, and we will darken a candle. When the candle darkens, we move forward to the next scene. And each scene is just played like you would any tabletop role-playing game. The GM's describing the world. The players mm -hmm. are interacting with it. But when that scene ends uh, and the candle is darkened, we enter sort of this transitionary period between the scenes called establishing truths. And this mm -hmm. is what I, I tried to model this after like horror movies where, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just one single cut most of the time. You're jumping forward in time and in circumstances between these scenes. So the establishing truth scenes, that is when the players kind of get to go around the table and they get to say a thing that is now true about the world or about their story. Maybe they've okay. jumped forward in time. They found equipment. Circumstances have changed a little bit. Sometimes establish, establishing truths can happen right when an action scene kicks off. Maybe the players just want to move past it, or maybe each of these things that they establish as truth is like a bullet time sequence of the fight. You know, whatever they want to do with it, they can do with it. Uh, they go around, they establish a number of truths equal to the number of lit candles, and then we move on to the next scene where the die pool will get refilled but now only up to nine candles, for example. What nine candles, nine dice. If every time we darken a candle, one of those dice goes into the hands of the GM instead. Okay. So now whenever the players roll, the GM will also be rolling. And again, it's not to succeed or beat them. They'll always succeed with a roll of a six, but mm -hmm. now it's to challenge them for their narrative control over the story. Yeah. So at the beginning of the game, you've got these longer scenes the players are succeeding at everything. Their characters are powerful and accomplished, and they're getting to narrate exactly what happens, getting to show off these characters. But as the game goes on, as things get dangerous, more and more of those dice go over to the GM. And that includes their power, their abilities to succeed at roles. Um, the length of the scenes begins to shorten. Uh -huh. Things get more dangerous. Even the literal power over the story slowly slips from the hands of the G uh, from the yes. players over to the GM. So that has like a an impending doom sense of desperation, and that works mechanically, but also just thematically as well. So that's yeah, that's yeah. It's fantastic. very much not meant to be like you know. There are some amazing uh, survival horror tabletop RPGs out there that have uh -huh. you know like. Dread by Epidiah Ravikol is a great example yeah. mm -hmm. uh, of like the classic survival horror. And that is a survival horror game, just like you'd see in a movie, right? You have these mm -hmm. moments where you're very calm and relaxed. And mm -hmm. then you have these moments of really intense stress as you're pulling from the Jenga tower that that game requires you to play with. Um, and potentially jump scares as that Jenga tower crashes to the ground and one of the characters meets their end. 
Um, 10 Candles isn't that. Like, it doesn't really have jump scares. It doesn't have those sudden spiked moments of anxiety like you would expect from survival horror. Instead, it has this really slow, creeping buildup of stress and intensity as mm -hmm. the game goes, as the candles darken, you have less light in the room, everyone's scooting closer to the desk so they can see the candles. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really tries to build up that slow build over the yeah. course of several hours. Um, so that's very much intended. I mean, it sounds great. I'm very excited to to run this game. <laughs> um, so, so, like I say, I'm I'm very much a forever player. But this game, I was like, I could definitely run this because exactly what you said about it being not having a whole load of prep. You're you're mm -hmm. going to be there creating your story as you go with your players. So I think that makes it feel so much less intimidating for somebody who yeah. perhaps hasn't played a lot of games. So that's definitely an appeal for me. Um, so talking about the the games, so you're going through seeing the scenes. It's getting darker. You're getting less dice. There is the last scene that we've spoken about, mm -hmm. and um, we know we're all going to die in the game. Not it's not me predicting the future, but yeah. maybe anyway. But in the game and <laughs> the last scene. Uh, so, could you talk about the last stand and how we structure that kind of mechanically? Sure. So, the ending of a game of Ten Candles is is critical, uh, and I even say in the book that this is the most important part of the game um, and the way that it the way that the ending works and why the ending works uh, actually requires that we go back to how the game starts which is with a recording being made um, at the beginning of the game the players are tasked to leave their final recording uh, which you can do on a cell phone or really any recording you know, device that you have, but you're passing around that recording device to everyone sitting at the table and everyone's recording their final message. Their, you know, quintessential, I don't know if anyone's going to ever hear this, but this is my name. This is who I am. This is what we're trying to do. And they just pass that around the table. Everyone makes that quick recording. And those are the first words you ever speak as your character. It, it just throws you in. You got to give this character their voice. You have to say, you know, what is important to them and summarize it up in a few seconds. And now we're going to dive into the first scene. At the very end of the game, when only one candle is left, that begins the, the last stand. Um, at that point, the players have one six-sided die, possibly two depending on if they have uh, if they were actually to gain, able to gain hope through their moment at some point in the game. Uh, but usually they'll just have that one die. And yeah. we are sort of collaboratively narrating this final scene. Everyone knows that they are going to die here in this final scene. Uh, and we go through that with conflicts coming up as they would normally. Mm -hmm. The problem here is that if you fail your conflict, which is very likely yeah, um, in that final scene, statistically, <laughs> yeah. uh, instead of just you know the scene ending, your character dies. And this is the one failed role in the camp in the uh, rules where it is up to the player to narrate how that happens for their character, what they want that last moment to be like. And that, that last scene will continue going until either all of the characters have died or that last candle finally sputters out all on its own, um, at which point all of the characters are dead and you are sitting in silence. And 
after you know reiterating one of the ritual phrases of the game, these things are true, the world is dark, the GM would play that recording that's made at the very beginning of the game. And everyone just sits back in that silence, listening to the very first words that they've spoken as their characters uh, in that final moment. And that is the end of the game. You have that flashback to the beginning and then they are no more. And you flip on the lights and everyone takes a deep breath and maybe cries a little bit and you move yeah. on. <laughs> and you that. move on, have your cathartic moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the the bit of the game that grabbed me so much when I was uh, researching it, ready to chat to you about it. Because um, I think that makes it a group shared experience. And I think those recordings are really nice, almost come down from the scene just to take you, you know, just to bring it full circle, give you a moment to kind of step back before you kind of come out of character. Because um, I imagine, you know, it's a, a horror game. So you could have some really extreme kind of things in there um so on on that note as well talking about it with with every horror game like safety mechanics and things are, are very important um what kind of recommendations and advice do, do you have for people you know to play this game safely well uh it's very important with with any role-playing game especially mm-hmm. with horror or with any kind of game you think will have serious or adult themes but mm-hmm. really cannot stress this enough any role-playing game. It's important to have uh, safety mechanics in place. So some of the ones that I use, um, Lines and Veils, which Mm -hmm. I I don't know who originally came up with that one, but um, this idea of like, we're going to talk about what are some things that we'd like to occlude, some things Mm -hmm. that we'd like to maybe fade to black on, and some things that are really hard lines of this is content that we don't want in our game. Yeah. Um, and to have that be known, have that be written down, have that be agreed to by everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the X card is really important, um, which will allow, you know, just having an index card on the table with a big X on it. People can point to it, say X card, tap it whenever there's a scene that they'd like to either back out of or, you know, cancel or or move on and talk about something else. Anything that comes up that they might may not be comfortable with. Um I think making it clear to the players that mm-hmm. they are more important than the game, because that yeah. should always be the case. Like the door yeah. is always open. People can leave if they need to. Player safety is always more important than the game. And they should, mm-hmm. you know, be be the stewards of their own safety and be the stewards of each other's safety. Uh, and then a really nice set of uh safety tools is script change by Bo Sheldon, uh, Mm -hmm. which I didn't know a lot about a while ago, but I've been looking into more recently. And I think it's more of a toolbox of safety mechanics and also for engaging with scenes in different ways. Like if something needs to be, it kind of uses uh, like a VCR analog to be like, do we want to go back? Do we want to go faster? Do we want to go slower on this scene? Like, is this good? Is this bad? Do we, you know, how do we want to uh, engage with it? All with, again, a, a, pre- a pretty simple analog to like just point to certain things and not interrupt the flow of play too much. There are so many amazing safety tools out there. Just, just look for them. Talk about them with your group. Make sure everyone's bought in. It is... Mm-hmm. And I always like to say this when I talk about safety tools, because despite the fact that they're just clearly so valuable, there's always some people out there that think, 
well, I don't want to, I don't want to censor my gameplay. I don't want to be censored. Yeah. I just want to role play. I just want to have fun and not worry about that. And I have to stress so much that Safety tools do the exact opposite of what you mm -hmm. think they do. Uh, because if there are safety tools on the table and everyone at the table knows they're there, has agreed to them, and is on board with how they work and is willing to use them, all of that, what that allows you to do is go so much harder because you yes. know there's a safety net there. You know yeah. that like if I push too hard, someone has an out, like we have an out. Mm -hmm. And it lets you really lean into those scenes and allow yourself to get more immersed than you ever might normally, because you're never really sure, is this too far? Is this too much? Are they going to be mad at me? This solves that. This lets you go deep into it because you know you're playing with safety equipment and no one's going to get hurt, or at least there are tools in place to help prevent that. So safety tools are just great. I can't sing their praises enough. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same as well. Before I go into any, I, when I first started playing tabletop RPGs, I started with indie games. So I was doing some games that had some kind of darker themes or horror. So I was so used to doing safety. And then I started playing D&D &D and, and things like that like five or six years after I've been playing that. So when I first came to my first D&D &D game, I was like, okay, so what lines and veils do we have? And everyone looked at me like I had three heads. Because they're like, yeah. well, we're just gonna go and kill the goblins. I don't. Why? Why would these things come up? Um, yeah. But I think it's important, even those games, because it could be something as simple as someone has a, I know, a fear of spiders, and mm -hmm. you could so easily put spiders as your monster in your D and D game. But if you know someone's really scared of them and it's gonna give them a bad time, just put a different one in. So yeah, yeah so I exactly. completely agree with you. Um, but coming back to kind of horror games, so obviously yeah. when you're setting up. Uh, your game. Um, this is just up me asking for me because I'm going to be running this game at some point. Yeah, yeah. So as well as safety mechanics, what advice do you have for GMs uh, that are going to run this game, perhaps if they've not really run many tabletop RPGs before? So uh, advice for running 10 Candles. And, and I mm -hmm. do think, by the way, that 10 Candles is a great game to run if you ha don't have a ton ex of experience running games because yes. it really does, <laughs> it really puts so much of the power in the hands of your players. They, mm -hmm. th through the establishing truths, through building their characters, they're going to tell you through their moments, they're going to tell you exactly what they want and what they're interested in through the game. So the first piece of advice is just keep your ears open and listen. Make sure mm -hmm. those moments are cool. Make sure that like if they're skipping, using their establishing truths to skip past a scene or to implement things that are dangerous grab onto those. They're giving you a gift that mm -hmm. you can then use and incorporate because you know already know they're interested in it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other things that I would say is one of the big, I guess not necessarily complaints, but one of the biggest questions I get mm -hmm. is about pacing in this game. Because yeah. now there is some natural pacing <clears throat> in place because if candles go out, they go out. If you're playing with real candles and they darken over time, they go out, and that's considered part of the game. Okay, but, so somebody oh, accidentally blows one out or something, it's done? It's out, scene ends immediately, you move on. Yeah, so there is, it, that is just another component of the game that is meant to breed just like some mild amount of anxiety. Um, yeah. Where people are, are nervous about the fragility of the flames on those candles. 
Um, also, tea lights, life in the game. Yeah, yes. <laughs> tea, tea lights do the, this amazing thing as well, as certain brands at least, where all of the wax in the candle will basically melt and it will just mm -hmm. appear to be clear wax. Like yeah. if you're using white tea light candles, where mm -hmm. it's hard to tell how much wax is left in those candles because it's mm -hmm. transparent, which is really fun. Okay. Um, but one of the, th so regarding pacing, um, one of the uh, one of the things I hear a lot is like, oh, well, our first scene took like two hours. And then the second scene was over in like, took another like 45 minutes. And the first like three scenes took forever. And then I had no time for the rest of the scenes because all the candles went out. I hear this a lot. So it has made it into my advice, which is to say okay. the GM has way more control in this game than a lot of other games over timing and pacing. If you okay. think that things are taking too long, there are a lot of ways that you can change that. Um, and the main thing you can do to, so let's talk first about speeding up pacing. To mm -hmm. speed up pacing, you just need to throw more encounter, more conflicts at your players. Mm -hmm. So throw something at them that you have no idea about. Throw them a, you know, a broken down car on the side of the road or a house with one like lit little candle flickering in an upstairs window. Something that's going to stop them and make them want to kind of engage with it. Mm -hmm. From there, you have a host of different conflicts you can throw at them. Okay, the car, the car's locked. Well, how do you want to get in? Break a window, roll a conflict. Pick the lock, roll a conflict. Okay, you get in. All right, you're checking under the seats for anything, roll a conflict. You want to see if there's gas in the tank, roll a conflict. Um, there's like a, you, you look in the back seat, there's a big duffel bag there. Or there's like a locked tote. You want to break in, it's a conflict, right? Yeah, so you yeah. can get a bunch of, you know, house, same thing. Knock on the door, conflict, open a door, conflict, all of these things. Um, one of the ones that I really like to do if I really want to end a scene is have something happen that requires a conflict from everyone at the table. Probably shouldn't throw in more than like one or two of these in a session, but like if okay. something's in the road and their car flips or the bridge is breaking or something, they need to get um, away from yeah. something dangerous. You can say, I need a conflict from everyone one at a time. And that die pool is going to shrink dramatically mm -hmm. uh, over the course of it. Um, so whenever you need to speed things up, just throw more conflicts at them. Uh, mm -hmm. If you need to slow things down, keep in mind that you never need to call for a conflict in this game. It's always up to the storyteller. So if you want to slow it down, call for less conflicts. Mm -hmm. If you're, oh yeah, there's a car on the side of the road. <clears throat> you open the door, then you sure. just tell them what's inside. You yeah. open this, you tell them what's inside. Uh, as long as you can sort of improv what it is, you can make scenes last as long as you want them to by just narrating whatever it is the players would have, kind of like in a you know a, a more traditional game. They're they're looking at a thing. You're just saying what it is. They're opening sure. the safe. You're saying what's inside, and you can save the conflicts for you know when you're ready to move the scene forward. That's especially mm -hmm. important when you get down to very few dice. You know, yeah. if you're at like two or three or four dice, those scenes go quick. So mm -hmm. you can be a little bit more, you know, slow with conflicts that you assign out. 
Um, or if like one player is trying is doing everything, you can like give them a couple of conflicts, but then sort of pull back and wait for some other players so everyone gets to roll some. Um, and that sort of folds into the third thing that I recommend, which is the third and final recommendation I'll give you, which is really try to get everyone rolling dice um, whenever you can. Uh, because one of the one of the other things that can sometimes happen in this game is that players don't use their cards uh, quickly enough in the game and don't actually get a chance to go through their entire stack of cards. So they'll mm -hmm. be like, at the end of the game, they're like, I never even got down to my moment to use it because you kind of have to sequentially order the cards in the order that you want to go through them. So... Even like if a player succeeds at a conflict roll, but you see that they're going to lose some dice because there's some ones that have been rolled, always make sure to mention like you can succeed at the roll, but if you'd like, you can try to save these ones for the die pool if you want to use your trait. Like always recommend, hey, don't forget about your trait. You could use it to save these ones, even though you don't need to, mm -hmm. you could. Um, and just encourage them to make use of their their you know cards to make use of their character abilities yeah. to you know when they get to their moment try to bring up their moment relatively quickly so they can have that good scene and then by the end of the game everyone's gotten down to their brink which is the exciting the exciting one that they all want to get mm -hmm. to um, and get to play around with that and that again it comes down to pacing you don't want them to work through their deck too quickly so you want to kind of spread those rolls around Keep an eye on maybe who's going through quickly. As long as you're just on the lookout for how your players are doing, how their stacks are looking, how long the scenes are lasting, yeah. you can kind of keep a really close watch on the pacing of the game and make it exactly what you want it to be. That's some fantastic advice. Because I think as a, as a GM, generally for me, one of my fears is pacing so much, especially for a one-shot, because... We've got this evening to do it. You've got your friends together to kind of do it then and there. It's it's not like you can go, oh, we'll just do that next week and get to it. So um, that was really good advice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, another thing about kind of setting up to play the game is obviously the setting. If you're sitting around a table with people with the candles and that creates the scene so much. Um, but a lot of people because of the pandemic and because of varying logistic reasons tend to play RPGs online. Have you, <laughs> have you found anyone's found a way to play this online well that that kind of works or as, is it very much impossible? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. As uh, as the 10 Candles subreddit will tell you, it you can't okay. play it online. It's, it's impossible. It is possible. But people have mm -hmm. correctly identified that you do uh, tragically lose some of, you know, what many people would be con would sure. consider the spark of the game yeah. um, to, to play it digitally. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've played it digitally and I've had a ton of fun. I know a <laughs> lot of people have. Um, I don't think that it is ruined or anything like that by playing it online. I still think that you can have fun with it. You obviously need to modify a few things here and there. Like, does everyone have candles or does just the GM have candles? Or, you know, are we all, we're all gonna do our own recordings on our own devices and then play them in order at the end. So you kind of have to pre-negotiate some of this stuff, but sure. I, I feel like it's still fully doable. Um, mm -hmm. it, it obviously works best when individual players can arrange their own play space in a way that they're not going to have a lot of distractions. They can maybe, you know, they can shut off the lights when they're playing. So they're still kind of immersed in the dark 
Um, you know, all of that stuff is still, you know, definitely recommended. Um, mm -hmm. You might you might lose some of the some of the magic, but not enough, sure. in my opinion, to completely just not play it online. I think it's very doable. That's always good to hear. Um, so kind of talking about the game, we, we've gone through it in quite a bit of detail. Um, is there anything you want to share about the game that I haven't asked you or, or something you want to mention um, before before we kind of move on with other questions? Or Well, one of the things that I, I guess I sort of briefly mentioned before is that it does, uh, 10 Candles does have sort of a built-in setting, right? It's this idea of 10 days ago, the world went dark, five days ago, they came, whatever the, um, you know, the, the monsters might be in any given session. And as you mentioned before, there is replayability, even though it's meant for one game session. Every time you play, you're going to be different characters, different circumstances, mm -hmm. um, and the monsters will be different in some way. Um, there are built into the rule book, there are a, a number of modules, sort of quick start modules in the back of the book that I honestly think are, are great for just like, you don't need more than what's written there. It's like sure. a couple paragraphs. It's very easy to write your own modules if you have, mm -hmm. you know, if you want to play maybe based on local landmarks for wherever you're playing or yeah. something that makes sense for, you know, your life or for the lives of your players that makes sense to them. Um, but one thing that I, I do really like to mention is that this game one of the things about 10 candles that I'm really proud of and why I mention it is because it does work as a toolbox for any kind of horror game you want to tell as long as it ends the same way, as long as it is going to end with all of these characters dying, yeah. you can throw the default setting in the book right out the window and play sure. any kind of game that you want to. Like one of the modules in the back is, you know, the world's not dark. You're just, you know, college kids going on summer break. And it's like a slasher flick, cabin in the woods style, um, you know, murder mystery. Um, one of the ones that I've I've recently played that I had so much fun with was you, the players were all taking on the role of a group of, you know, Power Ranger, Marvel style superheroes that were going off to fight what we knew would be their final battle but maybe they could save the yeah. world first, right? So any kind, anything that ends tragically, like with those characters dying, you can layer that on top of any kind of story you want to tell. If you sure. as a GM really want it to be an alien invasion or zombie game, like all you're doing is taking out the piece maybe that a player decides what the monsters are, or you modify it a little bit. And everything else is just like, yep, we're playing Alien Invasion. We're playing, you know, whatever this might be. It's always going to end the same way. Uh, but the actual module that is the uh, jumping off point for your characters can be anything you want it to be. It's a very versatile rule system. And sometimes, you know, continually when people come and share some of the absolutely off the wall ideas that they've run for their groups with 10 candles. Yeah. It always makes my heart very full because that's Amazing. what, you know, that's that's really digging into what the game can be. Do you have any kind of favorite examples of, of any weird scenarios that you've been presented with for settings? Well, one of the ones that I often will tell people about um, is where you are a, the players are, were a group of um fair weather cultists like they were <laughs> friendly like suburban like parents 
who okay. joined this joined this local cult uh, that was all about summoning the great darkness and the end of the world. But really, it was just like a garden club, and they to all got to the ha house, hang you know? out to get out the house, <laughs> like to just have fun. And they were, okay. and you know, they're they're going through the motions at one of their, you know, doing this ritual, and then the sun darkens, <laughs> and they have to reckon with the fact that they just brought about the end of the world somehow and maybe <laughs> fix it like and it, it was just a comedy of errors this game but um, yeah it just it just goes to show you can play sort of anything <laughs> Amazing, amazing. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, so if you uh, have heard us talking about 10 Candles and like me, you're instantly sold and want to play this yourself, where's the best way for people to purchase this game? Yeah, uh, you can find uh, 10 Candles and various other things I've worked on at cavalrygames.com. Um, you can find my website there. Uh, you can just go right in. You yeah. can pick up 10 Candles in either a PDF, a soft cover, or a bundle of both. Um, that's where you can find it. Perfect. Uh, and if you're listening to the podcast, that'll be linked in the show notes there. So you can just go click on that and purchase the game because the best way to support indie tabletop RPG creators is to buy their stuff. Um, so we've gone through uh, a lot of questions, uh, but people uh, have a burning question they want to ask you. Uh, is like Twitter a good place to catch you to ask any questions about the game or, or where's best to find you on the internet to, to quiz you about this? Yeah, so there there are sort of three avenues that are best to get in touch with me. One is definitely through uh, Twitter, at Shifty Ginger, um, one of which is through my Patreon. You can find me at patreon.com slash Stephen Dewey. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's where I bring in a, a lot of people who have enjoyed 10 Candles and want to support the game, have been supporting me there, uh, which has been amazing. Uh, and then the last place to find me uh, uh, quite a bit frequently has been on Twitch. Uh, so you can find me at twitch.tv slash Stephen Dewey, where mm -hmm. I do uh, where I do occasionally have like RPG design sessions that I oh, broadcast between various other things. So if you want to see how the sausage gets made, I guess you can tune in and watch some <laughs> of those um, or watch me play a variety of games with my friends. You can find me there as well. Amazing. And again, if you listen to the podcast, uh, links from the show note. And if you're watching, you've probably seen them on the screen here. Um, fantastic. So my last question for you, Stephen, that I ask everyone is, do you have any tabletop RPGs you would recommend that are not ones you've made and that are not D&D? Sure. So uh, to give the my, my sort of top three right now, and these are okay. subject to change any week. So yeah, that's, I won't hold you to advised. it for today. Yeah. 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 Um, so one that I have, I, I'm sure many, many of these may have already been mentioned. You might've even interviewed the designers. I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, but one of them is uh, Alice is missing by Spencer Stark, uh, which I had mm -hmm. the opportunity to play uh, pretty recently. I'm already in the process of setting up another game of it. Um, mm -hmm. Spencer is amazing. We've talked a lot online. Um, he has uh, it, he has informed me that some parts of Allison is missing were inspired by Ten Candles, like the use of oh, a amazing. recording. So mm -hmm. uh, Allison's missing also uses player recordings that are done at the start of the game and then played again at the end of the game. Um, but it's an amazing game about uh, you know a group of high schoolers and their friend Alice has gone missing has been reported as missing. Mm -hmm. And it plays in 90 minutes. It is a silent role-playing game where you're just communicating over text message with the other players um, in a group text and individual texts. 
as sort of the secrets of these characters and the secret of what happened to Alice all come out over the course of an hour and a half. Uh, it's mm -hmm. amazing and highly recommended. Um, one of my favorite games of all time that is sort of always living in my head rent-free is a game called Damn the Man, Save the Music by Hannah Schaefer. Um, okay. Damn the Man, Save the Music is about a group of uh, employees at a record store uh, and a last-ditch effort to save the record store that they love. Um, so you play this sort of very ragtag group of... Uh, the, the, I think the game describes like underachievers, overachievers, street philosophers, and love-struck artists that are all coming together yeah. to rescue their local record store. Um, and it's... It's it's just very good and yeah. highly recommended. Uh, you know, stick it to the man, save the music store. It's yeah. a, a really great, um, a, again, one shot tabletop RPG about banding together and saving this thing you love. And like, what's what's better than that? Um, and then the third one I'll mention is one that I'm actively playing uh, a pretty long standing, but very emotional, very intense campaign of right now, which is Fall of Magic by Ross Kalman. Um, this uh, mm -hmm. this is a game many people have probably heard about, um, mm -hmm. but it is played on a map that is slowly revealed as the game yeah. goes on. Um, you play as sort of friends or companions or followers of a magus or magus um, who is one of the last people in the world who can use magic and you are going on a pilgrimage across the world to Umbra, the place where magic was born because mm -hmm. magic is dying and the Magus is dying along with it. Um, and it's, it's a, again, like a very sort of simple and straightforward game. You're, you're building it just off of scene prompts and a beautifully mm -hmm. illustrated map as you're exploring it um, together and it is a game that evokes, you know, these emotions of awe and excitement and not knowing what's coming next um, with these really, really great prompts to guide role play. Uh, no two games will ever be the same. It's just absolutely a, a beautiful and perfect game. And I've been playing uh, an ongoing campaign of it for several months now where we play, yeah. you know, pretty infrequently, but the story has been, you know, overwhelmingly good. Um, so that's definitely another game I'd recommend. Fantastic. Thank you so much. There are three great recommendations there and possibly uh, people that I will definitely have to get on the show and some people I've already contacted to be on the show. So Stephen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your game with us. Uh, I'm very excited to run my first game of 10 candles. And if you're listening or watching, you can go to Cavalry Games. Uh, so you can do the same thing too. Um, so we will be back with Not D&D next week, live streaming on Monday, wherever you've watched this. And of course, you can always catch up on the podcast are not DD wherever you are listening to this um and with that i think that brings us to the end so Stephen, thank you so much for your time thanks for having me